0: Generally, having more communication with the people who are creating the content can exponentially improve the results in many ways because you can transfer more information. But also people, like I said, can feel more confident to make good decisions and they can ask you questions and they can also feel like you are a client that cares about them. So they care about you in exchange. So they invest more time, more effort in creating better content for you because they care about the results that you get as well. This is Writers in Tech, a podcast where today's top content strategists, UX writers and content designers share their well-kept industry secrets.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers in Tech, a podcast brought to you by the UX Writing Hub. Today, I have a brilliant guest, Michal Kessel. (laughs) Shitrit. Michal is the founder of Localization Station, long-time friend, has been in the field of translation I think since 2005, I'd I'd guess, and turning it into a form of art work when combining it with UX writing and basically doing localization, localizing digital products, localizing digital experiences. And now Michal is here with us. Michal, how are you?
0: Hi, I'm good. How are you?
1: I'm good. So how did you become a translator?
0: So um, maybe something that not a lot of people know is that uh, my mother is a translator too. So when I was a kid, like a very young kid, I would go to sleep. I would hear her typing on a computer. She was a translator even when she wasn't using computers. She would have pages, just writing them uh, from one language to the other. And so I kind of grew up around translation. And when I started my university, when in college, I, I said, okay, I need to make money off of something. So I know English and I know Hebrew, so I can start translating. A lot of students do kind of translation student work. And so I did that for a while. And then I moved to a different city here in Israel. And someone posted on one of the local groups that they're looking for someone to do some typing work. And so I said, yeah, I can do typing work. Sure. So I sent him an email and I did the typing work and we got to talking. And then he said, oh, yeah, I can teach you how to get professional translation work because I see that you're doing a good job. And he just showed me kind of how you can apply to international agencies and how what you need to do, how you can email them, what kind of work you need to be doing, what kind of software you need to be using. And I just came into that through him. Basically, he taught me everything he knew, basically taught me everything that I know today. He was the person who kind of got everything started. And that's how I came into translation. That's how it all started.
1: What project was it?
0: It was some sort of terms and conditions for a cruise, I think, like a, a, a cruise company that wanted to sell cruises in as well. And yeah. we ended up doing a bunch of projects like every year, we would do the catalog for this company.
1: Very cool. Yeah, and, it was really interesting too. And in what, so what What I really like about your work, I feel like uh, while you are a UX writer and doing localization, I think that you also involve like as a freelance, you like. Involved also in many other aspects, like building websites. I know I learned a lot from you about how to manage your business. So I think that's really cool. But before we dive into that, so I would like to ask you about what time you transformed yourself from translator to UX writer or localization expert.
0: It was around COVID. So, you know, during COVID, everybody had both a lot of time on their hands and then no time at all on their hands, especially if we had, I had a small uh, kid at the same time. And so there was barely any time, but there was also a lot of time to kind of think th- about things. And I, at the exact same time, I kind of separated in, from a partnership that I had in translation. And I had all this time to start thinking about what I really want to be doing now. And then I attended a short webinar. I think it was paid, but it was a very small fee, like a liminal fee by Kineret Tifra Kieran as well. And she said, oh, you want to learn about UX writing, how to do UX writing. Sure. You can just come to the webinar. And I'll teach you all about it. So I came into the webinar and I don't know if, I know a lot of people who've experienced the same thing when the first time they discovered UX writing, they had the sensation of like, where has this been all my life? This is what I want to be doing with my life. This is like the perfect thing that I've been doing for years, but I didn't know, I didn't know it should be called UX writing. And so I started learning about UX writing more and getting into kind of how to do it and taking on small projects and bigger projects and working with companies And then gradually, I realized that all of this knowledge that I've been gaining, all of this knowledge that I've been learning is something that would have really helped me if I had known it when I did just translation, because I did get software localization, software translation projects before, but I didn't have this UX writing knowledge. So I didn't really know how to create content for user interfaces. And it's not just that I didn't know how to write it. I also didn't know what questions I was supposed to be asking. I didn't know what context I was supposed to be getting. I didn't know how the, everybody who were involved in creating this content before it was translated, how they made their decisions and what kind of processes that involved. And if I had known, then I could have created much better content for Hebrew speakers. And so I said, okay, somebody needs to kind of pick this up and start sharing this knowledge with translators as well, because there's no reason for them not to know this, because at the end of the day, they are doing the same work, but they don't have the same kind of skills or knowledge because nobody told them that they should have them. Nobody... Nobody comes to translators because of the way the industry is built. Nobody comes to translators and says, oh, yeah, if you do software localization, you need to have these specific UX writing skills. So that's what I started just writing about it and talking about it and kind of sharing information on LinkedIn. And that eventually led to creating the course that I'm teaching, the UX writing course for localizers. That's more of a kind of, I guess, a constructed way to learn all the knowledge that localizers need to know to create UX content in their language. And so this is a really long course, but there's also a lot of information just shared on the website for free and on LinkedIn for free and through the newsletter, just because I really feel that localizers should have this knowledge. I think that it's really critical for basically for the quality of the UX that people get in any language that's not in English.
1: That's awesome. So tell me a little bit about the processes of UX writers that are also doing localization that you would consider to be different than just writing by itself.
0: So when you're a localizer, you don't really get a say in everything that happens at the beginning. And we really want localizers to get a say, we want localizers to be involved, but the reality is that most of the time they're not involved, both because sometimes they're external and so they're not part of the team and they don't get to kind of sit in on the meetings where people make the initial decisions. They don't get a say in the research. They don't get to say a lot of the times the research doesn't include local users at all. It only includes users in the initial and the source market. And so they don't have really data to build up on, as UX writers sometimes do. So they get content and they were told, oh yeah, we created all of this content. We made all of these design decisions already. We made decisions about the flow. We made. We already know everything. You just need to write the content in your language, right? So it's very easy. But first of all, without knowing everything that happened before, you're not really able to create content that's effective. And so this is a big problem. So a lot of times localizers don't get enough of the context information and they have to kind of really dig to get it if they want to make that effort. They have to really dig to get it. And then they're a lot of the times not allowed the same freedom that UX writers are allowed because they can't really, they're told, oh yeah, this is the source and you have to stay close to that source. So you don't really get... The opportunity to create content that's really fluent in your language because they don't have that freedom. And so they're really limited in a way. They're kind of put in a box and they say, oh, yeah, within the confines of this box, you have to create content that's user friendly and we want it to be as effective in Spanish or French or German or Hebrew or Arabic or anything else. We want it to be as effective as it was in the source, but don't do anything that you're meant to be doing when you create UX content to make it as effective as the source. Like we're not going to give you any context information. We're not going to give you any data and research. We're not going to do a B test on the localized content after to kind of give you feedback and see what's working. Or if we are doing a B testing on the content, the localized content, we're not going to share this with you because you're an external freelance linguist and we have a bunch of you and we send the content to whoever's free or can deliver the content faster or cheaper basically they don't have the infrastructure needed to create content that's really effective and just basically good for the user experience that people get at the end. Uh, And they have to make do with that. And it's a big challenge. And it's not always a challenge that localizers can solve. So a lot of the times there are things that just they can't do anything about except for really hoping that they're going to get to work with clients who actually understand what they need and want to kind of work with them to make things better. Uh, But there are things that they can do. They can if they know how to create content for UX and they know how the process looks so they can ask the right questions sometimes and they can find a lot of the information on their own and they can also just take some of that freedom without being necessarily given that freedom so they can make decisions that they can create content that's fluent from the confidence of knowing what is fluent content and what is good UX content in their language. And if they don't have that confidence then it's much harder for them to take that ownership and say, oh yeah, I'm willing to make a change i'm willing to move away a little bit from the source because i know what is happening here i know what kind of flow this is i know what i'm meant to be writing i know my what uh, my users expect to get and so i feel confident enough to write content that's fluent and this is something that can't happen unless they have that knowledge and they have enough knowledge to to have that confidence
1: so what are we missing today in your opinion so we could get better and rethink the way that we're doing localization
0: though well it depends on who is we
1: we as tech companies let's say tech companies right now that need to localize their digital products
0: so a few things first of all if tech companies can and they don't always have that option but if they can they should be working with linguists who know how to UX write how to content design And they are rare. A lot of the times they are not freelancers. So they're hard to get if you're a small company and you don't want to kind of hire a team of of, uh, linguists, then you don't want to always uh, have access to these people. And like I said, a lot of the people are just not trained to create UX content. And so they don't always have that option. But if they do, if you do in your language, either work with linguists who have UX writing knowledge or give them UX writing training, that's also possible. To make them better, to give them that confidence, to give them that knowledge. So that's one thing that is ideally is going to really improve the quality of the results if possible. Something else that is really critical to do is to send enough information, send enough context, because a lot of the times tech companies, and this happens most mostly with uh, the bigger companies, because they have their processes and they work with localization uh, vendors and agencies. And so they just, they take all the content that they want to localize, they send it to the agency and they expect to get it back localized, and they really don't want to know what's happening during that process. They don't want to be involved in that process because it just gives them more work, essentially, on top of what they already have. This is something that if you do that, you can't really improve the the result in any way because you don't know what's happening. You don't know what your linguists need. You're not able to answer questions in a way that's really constructive because you only get kind of the question. You can't ask for any clarifications instead of just sending your content for translation and expecting to get it back, if you get involved in the process, you get involved with your linguists, even if they are not working for you, but for the agency. So you talk to them and maybe you have an initial meeting with all of them so they can ask you questions. Or maybe instead of just sending them the content, you send them a short video of your flow and what it contains and what you're expecting to get. Or if you're giving them context about what decisions you made in terms of content and in terms of designing the flow itself and the the experience itself. So you give them more information about that context and they can use that to make better decisions at the end so you would naturally get better copy also. So that's also part of it. Uh, And just generally having more communication with the people who are creating the content can exponentially improve the results in many ways because you can transfer more information, but also people, like I said, can feel more confident to make good decisions and they can ask you questions And they can also feel like you are a client that cares about them. So they care about you in exchange. So they invest more time, more effort in creating better content for you because they care about the results that you get as well. So you're not just kind of nameless, big company. Nobody really knows who's actually sending the content. Nobody actually knows what kind of results you're getting. So if they know you, if they know if they have a face, that they can connect to the work, then you will naturally get better results from them as well. They would be more inclined to put in the effort. So kind of a bunch of different things that people can do to improve. And every one of these things is can have can make a small improvement. And together they kind of make a much bigger effort, I guess, for to improving the localized copy. But I would also say that it really depends on your company, your needs, your problems, because every company has different problems when it comes to localization. All companies have localization problems. I haven't I've yet to meet to okay. a company. Yeah, I've yet to meet a company that's happy with their localization results, but every company has different challenges. And so you have to look at the challenges to understand what you need to fix and how you can fix that.
1: All right. So based on your experience, what should be even the organizational structure of good localization process? And let me explain. So is it having like a core team of product folks? with a UX writer that works with, like, localization expert of every language. That's, like, the ideal way, but it's hard to get, I assume. Or maybe a localization manager that works with a bunch of translators. So, like, how do you see the things in the different companies you work with?
0: My favorite answer is that it depends, because it really depends. Yeah. It depends on the size of the company. It depends on how much content you have to localize. So if a company can justify having in-house linguists for every language, that's ideal, because you work with the same people. They have a very kind of in-depth familiarity with the brand and with the context and with everything. They sit on a, sit in on the meetings. And so that's the ideal way. It's but nice. uh, naturally, a lot of companies don't have enough of a need for those in-house linguists because there there might be a small company, small interface, not a lot of copy, not a lot of updates to the content that needs to be kind of constantly updated. And so in that case, you would work with freelance uh, external linguists. You would have to. So in that case, I would really recommend working directly with those linguists and not through some kind of big agency. A lot of companies like to work with the big agencies because it takes uh, kind of the weight of the responsibility off their shoulders, but it also takes their control out of their hands. And so try to work directly with your linguist. If you work with an agency, still ask to communicate directly with your linguist so that the agency helps you in terms of like facilitating the process, but you still have direct access to these people. You can ask them questions. They can ask you questions. You can talk with them. You can have them on a uh, kind of initial brief meeting when you send in a project. So a lot of different things that can still improve the results. And if you can, then yeah, definitely have a localization manager in charge of this process and in charge of kind of putting all of these people together, kind of connecting all these people that are involved, it's not always possible. And also a lot of the times localization managers are kind of limited to work within a specific department. So a lot of the times you would only be focused on marketing or you would only be focused on that product. And then you don't have that complete sync between all these people so that sometimes uh, the voice comes out kind of a little bit different. Sometimes you are marketing linguist or very good with marketing, but you don't have really good linguists to work with product or UX. Sometimes people only are only willing to do one and not the other, and so again it depends on on kind of the structure that you already have. And there are a lot of different considerations to this that are not only related to the end experience. Sometimes there's timing and there's technology and the type of technology that you're using and the way that you're kind of creating your designs, your design process itself and where localization can fit into that specifically. And there are like bigger considerations of budgeting and who's in charge of the localization budget. And if you put localization within products, so who's in charge of that budget as well? And then, oh yeah, but you also need to localize marketing. So how do you share that budget? It's a whole kind of, and so it's definitely something that companies need to think about, should think about, and should invest effort into fixing and improving. But it's also, it has to be a process where you sit down with your stakeholders within your company, with your designers, with your kind of C-level, C-suite people and say, okay, this is how we are. This is the way that our company is built. This is the way that we design products. This is where localization comes into it now. But we have these problems, A, B, C, D, And so what can we do to fix that? And so talking over it, talking with everyone involved, then maybe you can try and find the best fixes for your specific process and organization and structure and everything else.
1: And what will be the first step when right now working with someone like you, okay, I have a company, we have a product in English, we try to translate it, it doesn't really work. And um, let's say that this is Adam let's invent a product, a G membership website app that right now want to be in Spanish-speaking countries, or oh, you know what, in this case, in Hebrew-speaking mm-hmm. country like Israel, and uh, we have many different user flows. Obviously, we need the whole app translated, but we have very limited amount of budget, so I guess we need to figure out the low-hanging fruits and how to budget for a project like that. So what would be the first step?
0: So the first step is to understand, you, you're you saying this is an app that's not localized at all yet.
1: It's not. We're trying to localize. Okay. So what you're saying is that there is a difference if they started already the localization process in another language or, and they're moving into a new language Oh, it's like the first localization effort, right? Yes.
0: Yeah. What's, what's yeah it's thing? a big difference. The, the difference point. is that if you don't have a process at all, yeah, then you can try and do it right from the get-go, which is ideal, obviously, but also... There's a lot of like uh, trial and error here. So you would naturally, whatever you do, even if you try and do it the best way you can and you learn about it and you talk to the best experts, you would still have issues and you would still have issues that you would need to fix over time. Because like I said, it depends on the way a company is built. It depends on the market. It depends on the, a lot of things that you never have a full ability to know in advance. And so I would never recommend the companies, and I, I don't think barely any companies actually do, start localizing into 20 languages at the same time. Get, mm-hmm. it can't happen. It's nothing that you really don't want to be doing because you want to learn first of all how to localize and how what what is kind of the best way to localize for your company. Yeah, before you can add more languages.
1: So like what you're saying is not even one language at a time. It's like building some kind of a localization process and then scale mm-hmm. it to other languages.
0: Yeah and then start scaling. And a lot of the times what happens is it doesn't happen in that way. So it doesn't it, companies don't say oh yeah Maybe we should localize into these kind of markets because we think it's going to be worthwhile. So a lot of the times what happens is that you have your product and then you have an opportunity in another market and you say, oh no, but we need to have the product in Spanish and we need to have it fast. And so what you do is you go to a localizer and you say, these are all the strings that we have. Here's an Excel file or here's a Figma maybe, or here's whatever. Please write all the content in Spanish. And so you start with this very kind of rough, slow of localization. And you gradually, you maybe if you add another language, maybe you have three languages and then you say, oh no, this is taking too much time. It's too kind of clunky. We have to find a way to streamline this. We have to make it more automated, faster, less mistakes. Maybe you don't want as a product a manager, designer, or writer, maybe you don't want to sit and copy paste strings from Figma all day because you have other things to do. And so you, and then you start improving on it. And so it's rarely something that happens that you just kind of drop a localization workflow into a company and it just start moving. Like This is not something that would usually happen. But more often than not, the issues are not with, we need to start localizing, how do we do it? It's more, we are already localizing, but something is not working, and then how do we fix it? That's a big issue. And it could either be maybe you started localizing, like I said, and then you find yourself with a very clunky process, or maybe the results are not good, maybe... The results are okay but you're not getting the same level of engagement or kind of the same level of satisfaction from your users in those markets or a lot of other kind of different maybe you're not as differentiated in that market compared to your source because of like you have maybe better apps in that market that it, the content is better localized the experience is better and so people would like using them better maybe your experience is not even bad in that country it's just that it's not a good fit for that country because users in that country expect something else than your users in your uh, source because original market. And so the first thing you need to do in that case, if you have issues with your localization is to say, okay, this is the problem that I have. Like I sit with the problem and then try and figure out why it's happening. And it could be a variety of sources. It could be usually a mix of sources, a mix of different things that are come together to create that problem. Uh, But you have to understand the problem first because then you know what you need to solve.
1: So let's get back to our G membership app that we're localizing right now to English. So answer the question, if it, they don't have any process in place, we need to figure out like what are the prob- problems right now, define them and then get to it. So right now we're building this process, right? So we, we understand that uh, something is broken with the process and now we create this app in Hebrew or what, how would we do that?
0: So So this is an app that's already being localized into English, like you said?
1: Um, This is an American app. It's been localized to Spanish, and now they're trying to localize to Hebrew.
0: Okay. So they already have one language. They want to add another one. Yep. And other than that, do you have any problems with the way Spanish is done?
1: Well, in Spanish, we have a new new title that is Spanish-speaking. So we kind of trust Mm -hmm. her. She's doing a great job. And obviously, not everything is perfect, but but the process is kind of okay. It's not bad.
0: Assuming that you are happy with the way Spanish is done, you can start doing the same thing, but with other languages as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, What often happens is that the way that you're doing localization into one language is good, but it's not scalable. And so if you, up until now, have worked with one single writer and you gave that writer instructions and you worked together, If you want to add two more languages, that becomes like a really heavy burden on you because copying and pasting content from Figma to your production file in one language is okay. In three languages, it's a mess. Sitting with linguists and asking them or writers and kind of answering their questions is okay with one. It's really hard to do with three. If you add more languages, it becomes a big hassle. And so you have to, and then that's the point where you realize you have to streamline and you have to start finding processes that are scalable. And not just, and even though something is working really well in your one language, you unfortunately would need to change that so that you have something that's more scalable so you can reach more people at the same time. And then it's the same as if you didn't have a process at all. So you would say, okay, this is the way that we do design. And we want to be able at this specific point, ideally at the design stage and not later after it's produced. So at this specific point before production, before development. We want to be able to add a language. And so we have the content and the content is in X. Sometimes it's on Figma. Sometimes you have some sort of a UX writing app like uh, Ditto Frontitude. Sometimes you have some sort of CMS that you copy the content from Figma into that CMS or sync it into. And then you say, okay, I have the content here and then I need to get it into another language. So how would I do it? I would find some sort of a uh, localization app. That's what is what uh, companies would usually do. And they would sync the content either from Figma, from the design. And that way you can get some visual context in as well. So you can get screenshots if you have all the content within Figma, which is not always the case. Uh, Or I would take the content and sync it from our production environment. Or I would take it and sync it from our CMS, from our anything else that we use and sync it into the localization app, provide as much context as I can, find linguists that are as qualified as I can. And start working this way and then see how it's going. So you would start localizing and then you would see, you would meet the problems. You want to, of course, be aware of the problems beforehand and try to minimize them as much as possible, but you would find problems still because there is no way, localization is such a huge kind of endeavor, then that there's really no way to know in advance everything that could be happening. So each language has its own considerations. Each culture has its own considerations. The process itself has its own considerations. Uh, working with linguists is definitely a trial and error. You would start working with some people who would be great. Some people are going to be really flaky and drop out and never deliver anything on time and kind of do really bad work. And then you would have to replace them And to, until you come up with a team that is really kind of effective for you and for what you need. So that's also something that would take a little bit of time. So just come into this knowing that you would have issues and try to minimize them as you can, but iterate. As so I think it's very similar to basically any product design or product creation process. You always have to iterate at some on some form, some level, to be able to come up with really good results at the end.
1: How do you plan a localization project to like, okay, so like are we tackling it like by the main user flows and then the sub user flows or are we doing the whole thing or do we do it in like sprints? How exactly do you budget your time for it?
0: Some companies, and I think, like I said, it depends. On if, you, if you have a small app and you need all of it localized, you need users to have access to all of the features of that specific product. Initially, like from the get-go, you have to localize everything. You don't have a choice. You have to have everything in that language. Sometimes it's not the case. Sometimes there are products that are really big, And then you can give people access to different features, less features in one language at the beginning and kind of offer that. Yeah, and launch and then just try and add as many features as you can. And and then at the end, you localize features, new features as they come out. So if you have a very big product, a very big system, a very complex system, then every new feature will get localized into the languages that where you offer that feature. Sometimes features are not available in all markets and it's okay because they're not needed in all markets. And so then you would just localize the features that you need. And then that's something something that kind of, it's called continuous localization. So that's something that kind of happens all the time after your initial launch of the localized product.
1: I see. Okay. That's cool. Challenging indeed.
0: It's definitely challenging. Yeah, it's definitely, especially if you have a lot of kind of new features, new launches all the time. So you always have to be on top of that and kind of make sure that your features are all getting localized and delivered on time. And timing becomes a really big issue, which is a problem because it kind of reduces from quality. So there's always this balance of trying to get things ready on time, but still having them quality high enough for people to be able to use the product and enjoy the product in that language.
1: What are the tools that you use the most when doing localization?
0: So as a vendor, as a localizer, I'm not the one making decisions about tools. The people who need to make the decisions about tools are the sometimes it's the LSP, the agency. A lot of the times it's the product company that makes the decision because you make the decision based on what is the best kind of, what tools plug best into your existing environment, existing processes. And so you make that decision and you just go and you tell your vendors, "Oh yeah, we're using, I don't know, localized phrase, localized anything else that we're using at the moment. This is the product, the software that we're using. So you need to go into that and log in and uh, localize the content. At the end of the day, most of them, they're a little bit different, but most of them have very similar features. So if you're a linguist, you work with one, you probably know how to work with any of them.
1: So let me rephrase the quote, it will be what are the most common tools for localization folks?
0: So you do have your, like I said, localization platforms. And these are really advanced. So when you do translation, you do have a lot of different other different tools. So if you translate documents or if you translate website content or if you translate, I know, medical content. So you have different it's called CAT tools, computer assisted translation. And you have the different tools that you would usually use to create content. When you do app localization or software localization, because it's such so complex, like I said, and has to kind of plug into different other tools and different other processes. So you get platforms that are more complex and have more advanced features, like I mentioned, like Localize, Phrase, localize You have a bunch of others crowd in as well that teams would usually choose among these based on what integrates with their environment in the best way, based on pricing, of course, and service. And you know how companies make decisions about different tools. So they have you have these options, and you also have a few other options as well. And companies would do their uh, market research. They would. Ideally, meet with someone from that company, ask them questions, and then make a decision about what they want to use. And these tools, all of them, they obviously are all competitors. So they all have their own kind of features and new launches, I guess, all the time, new versions and differentiators. And so you have to do your market uh, research to find what's best for your specific um, needs. And also, the more that we start incorporating uh, machine translation into our localization processes... And it's not really there for UX yet, but it's going to be there at the end. And so, and a lot of the times companies don't just do UX, they do translation for a lot of different types of content and UX is one of them. And then you also have to consider what is the best machine translation engine for your company, for your needs, for the languages that you were working with, for the niches and subject matters that you're translating for, and... Maybe that in that sense you can find a tool that also integrates with that specific or those few specific um, machine translation engines. And so it's also considerations to have in mind.
1: Using tools like the CATS with tools, localize and so on. What are the most common features that let's say that someone that don't know nothing about these type of tools or is this new right now? So I guess there's like. A lot of features, but what are the most common features? Like, how would you use them basically? If you have a Figma file, right? You have your strings, CSV, and Mm -hmm. you have also a localization tool. So, how a good, how a healthy process will look like in your opinion?
0: So, localization tools, most of the big ones, I think, already have a way to sync with Figma. Mm -hmm. So, you would use it as a plugin on Figma, and then you can sync the content into your localization project. And the best part about it is that most of the time, I don't know to tell you exactly for all the tools, but most of the time you can also pull screenshots, which is visual context into right. your localization platforms. And that's really, really critical if you want the content to be localized as well, because as we know, it's very short strings and they have to fit within their layout. They have to know exactly where they need to fit. You have to know if you have enough space. We write in Hebrew, Hebrew is very short, but some languages are extremely long, much longer than English. And so space is a very big issue and a very big consideration. It's something that happens a lot for companies that they create content in say German and then they find out later that they don't have enough, they didn't leave enough space for the content to fit in. And so the more visual content that you provide your translators, obviously less problems at the end. And so you can pull content from Figma. Uh, in some platforms, you can also push content into the Figma. So that's also really valuable because at the end, after you do your translation, you can push things back into the design file and get localized screenshots for your translators to review, which means that you can basically check everything before you do production. That's very, very uh, valuable and helpful. What else? You have a lot of like a suite of different features within the cat tools that kind of help you maintain consistency. You can Im- implement the glossaries inside translation memories inside. So you basically remember everything that you've translated in the past. And that means that translators can kind of maintain consistency, both in terms of terminology, but also how things were translated. If you have like a specific feature within your product, and then you refer to it somewhere else, translators can go check how it was called or how they have translated or how someone else has translated it in the the past and kind of make sure that it's consistent and that everything, the experience kind of stays cohesive. And so that's also a very valuable feature. Uh, like I said, you have machine translation built in. You have different quality features built in and the different tools offer different levels of quality features. But basically, definitely all the spell checking and kind of checking for punctuation and making sure that you don't have any kind of critical mistakes, double spaces, and stuff like that. You can limit the amount of characters if you need for for a specific string. Uh, you can use ICU syntax so that you can make space for strings that are both singular and plural, or strings that have to be both masculine and feminine. And so that can also be really valuable and powerful when you need your interface to be more flexible and dynamic for different people, different types of content, different, uh, like I said, amounts of content and stuff like that. These are kind of the core features I think that all or most uh, localization platforms would have. And then they have all of those different more advanced features that they kind of build on top of too sometimes.
1: All right. So that was great and so thank you so much let's talk a little bit about the secret sauce that is filling our world lately which is artificial intelligence my question to you would be how do you see if you see I'm, i i have a feeling that you see ai impacting the world of localization as well do you use any type of ai tools i know that localize uh, have some kind of an AI features in it but in general do you use any type of um, maybe ChatGPT to rephrase something before you translate it or other AI tools and how do you see this field evolving along with AI tools
0: So first of all I want to say that translation is kind of the OG AI I don't know, use, I guess, use case. Right. So tra- we'll basically, <laughs> AI was invented for a translation. And so, yeah, it's definitely being in use already. There's a lot of, like we said, there's a lot of talk about machine translation in the industry these days. So there are two types of machine translation that you can use. The first one is kind of the classical machine translation. So it's classical in the terms of, in the sense that it has been used for the past years already. It's uh, based on uh, neural networks. And so it provides much more flexible translation compared to the statistical forms that were used in the past. And that's what most companies are still using today. So if if you would use a machine translation engine today, most of the chance is that you get neural machine translation used to provide your content. And as I said, the type of engine that you're using is going to determine the quality of the results too. So sometimes for different languages, you would want to use different engines because they were trained better for those uh, specific languages. And then what companies are experimenting with today. And it's definitely experimented with caution because of the risk I guess that it has is using Gen AI too for translation. And uh, personally, I feel that uh, machine translation is rarely used in UX today. I feel that the point where it's going to start being in heavy use is when we feel confident enough to use Gen AI for translation because this is the point where it's going to provide the most, I think the biggest amount of value because you can allow your Gen AI to create content that really feels fluent in that language. So it doesn't have to adhere to the source in the same way because it's generative. You can tell it, oh yeah, this is what I want to create. This is the context, right? This is basically what I'm trying to do with the content here. And maybe you create a version that does the same thing in My language in Portuguese, for example, but it does the same thing, but it doesn't have to be exactly the same as the source. Maybe it would have to be a little bit different so that my users feel that it's fluent and natural. It works within the flow. And when we feel confident enough to use Gen.ai, then we can do that and actually achieve something that is fluent and, and natural. And I'm guessing it's a little bit of a long time still until we can do that because of the, like I said, the risk, the amount of hallucinations that Gen.ai still experiences, and is probably going to be experiencing in the future as well. And what's going to happen then is that probably the companies are going to use Gen.ai to create the content, then use linguists to improve the content, verify it, quality check it. And these linguists are going to have, at that point, going to have some form of knowledge about how to create user experiences, because there's no way that you can verify content for UX without actually understanding what it's meant to be doing. So translators are not going to be the ones writing the content. They're more going to be the ones checking it and kind of designing it and making sure that it fits. But I don't know if we're there yet in terms of using this technology for translating user experiences.
1: Very cool. Say, let's see. Well, uh, this field is taking us. I'm very curious about AI and what's coming up and still, obviously, we can't, uh, we can't really trust it when in I use it to start the discussion maybe, but then I end up to write the stuff myself. And I don't let it write stuff for me, for example.
0: Yeah. I would add that the way that translation for UX is being done today is translators could use Gen.ai to brainstorm, like you said, to find kind of good ideas on how to create content and how to create UX content. But most linguists, especially the external ones, are not being paid enough to do it. They are either being paid per word, and then they don't have time to invest in kind of each and every little string. Because if you pay per word, you have four word strings, you're not going to invest 10 minutes to brainstorm about it. You're just going to do the best you can within the time that you have or they're being pay- paid up per hour, but then they're usually being told, oh yeah, we're going to allocate this amount of hours for this work. So usually they don't allocate enough time to actually go and do that brainstorming. And so even though definitely me as a, as a business owner, as a content creator, I use Gen.AI all the time to brainstorm and to kind of get things going and to kind of get ideas, I don't see that happening in translation because of the way that the industry is kind of built and the way that is that linguists are being paid at the moment.
1: Any tips for using AI uh, to create content as a content creator?
0: I don't know. I, the thing is that ChatGPT was launched. So I've been using um, Gen AI before. You know, I've been using Jasper for a while and a few other kind of software tools. And then ChatGPT launched and it felt like the world was swamped with tips on content creation using AI. Yeah. And it always felt like there's so there's so much information on this. Online, there's so much to do, so much to, to read about. And it's mostly just a, something that you want to experiment with, because I think every person writes in a different way. So some people find it very, very hard to phrase things. For me, it's always been something that was not the biggest challenge for me, but just more to get ideas and get things started. That was my kind of main challenge and speed things up too. And so... If you're a person who has more trouble phrasing things, maybe, first of all, maybe you would need a different workflow, but also maybe you would need a different tool. So I use ChatGPT+. For me, it's the best, most, most uh, flexible tool because I feel that I can do a lot of different things with it. Now they've launched Dolly, so even, I can even ask it to generate photos and, uh, and images. But I think like if you have trouble phrasing yourself on a day-to-day, maybe you want to use something like WordTune that actually kind of helps you phrase shorter content and so it's very it's very versatile and you have to kind of find the specific workflow for your style, I guess. Very
1: cool. Uh, Michal kessel Shetritz. thank you so much for being here today. Check out the website, localization station. We have a free seven days course for UX writing in localization. So that's a good one. I will link it also in the show notes as well. Thank you everyone for tuning in for this episode of Writers in Tech. Brought to you by the UX Writing Hub. Check our website too. We have some resources, free resources, just like this podcast. We have our blog, weekly newsletter, free UX writing course, free AI design course. And we've just launched the AI Design Academy, which you're going to learn how to use AI in your design process and also how to design AI products, which is pretty cool. thank you so much.
0: Thank you for having me.